Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Clam comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, motherfuckers? Nope. That's not how we're going to start it. <laughs> That's so good. I'm Robert Evans. Uh, hello. I, you're, this is the Behind the Bastard show, the show where we tell you everything you don't know about the very worst people in all of history. Only today, that's not what we're doing. Uh, this is our special Christmas episode. Uh, and I figured that uh, in light of the, the holiday season, the fact that uh, it's the time of the year where everybody tries to think about the better aspects of humankind... We would do a, a, a little break from tradition here and talk about someone who is not a bastard, but is in fact a little bit of a hero of mine, uh, more than a little bit. My guest today is Anna Hosnia, uh, co-host of the Ethnically Ambiguous Podcast. What did what? I fuck up? Oh, she didn't enough. even notice. No, she did. She's just immune to it. Uh, uh, no, thing. what did you, you say? Hosnia. That's uh, totally fine. You're okay with yeah, who cares? At this point, who cares? He said it. Most people go like Hosni or Hosni. That's you are you are there, my friend. All right, let's I'll leave this it. all in, uh, Lawrence. Yeah, we're uh, <laughs> keeping it in. This will be good because that way, if any of our listeners meet you, they will know how to approximately pronounce your <laughs> yeah. name. Yeah. <laughs> how are you doing today, Anna? I am good. You know, I overslept this morning, um, which is common for me on a nice Monday. Yeah. Uh, I can't hop back that well into the work week after no, a weekend. No, there's no hopping for I just got off of a red eye from D.C., so I am I am ruined right Were now. Were you fighting the good war? 
Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I was I was teaching baby cops how to find Nazis on the internet. Uh, of course you were. Time. <laughs> that is the most you thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Anna, have you ever heard of a fellow named Raoul Wallenberg? No. I'm well, curious, though. you're about to. Uh, in a world so full of evil, depthless greed, unspeakable cruelty, and uh, that one Ariana Grande music video that was kind of mean, uh, <laughs> it can be easy to feel like there's no way a single human being can make any kind of meaningful difference. I feel like that. Uh-huh. A lot. I think it's a pretty common feeling in 2018 as we watch society spiral into uh, oblivion. <laughs> That's a, you've got that Weinstein laugh going again. <laughs> Just combust into a cloud of dust. Yeah. Now, uh, Raul Wallenberg, I feel, is proof against this kind of hopeless feeling. This is the story of a man who saved tens of thousands of lives using nothing but paper and the eternal power of lying. Uh, Raoul Wallenberg might be the man from history I most admire. And so today, as sort of a Christmas present or as a Yule present, if you're not into Christmas, or as a uh, Satanist Easter present, I think that's in December too. I don't really know much. No, probably not. I just lied about that. Um, Saving the world. I think this might also count. We're recording this during Hanukkah, but it's not Mm. going to run during Hanukkah. But you can consider it a Hanukkah present as well, Uh. if, if that is your desire. Any kind of present, if you like presents, this this is a kind of one of those for you. A Chrismica, if you will. Chrismica. Chrisma, Chrismica Satanist Easter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's talk about <laughs> Roel Wallenberg's story <laughs> after this. Roel Wallenberg's parents were the scions of two wealthy Swedish families. His father was also named Roel Wallenberg and was a naval officer in the Swedish Navy. Uh, his mother, Maj Weising, was the daughter of a neurologist. They married in 1911, but Roel contracted cancer a few months later and died three months before the birth of the son who would carry on his name. So, But he didn't go by the second or junior? Mm-mm. No, because oh. his dad was dead as shit. Uh, so you don't got to do that if your dad so, dies. So Swedish. Mm-hmm. So Donald, well, no, not going <laughs> <laughs> to <gonna> do that. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. breaking the law again. So R. Raoul Wallenberg was born on August 4th, 1912 in Kapsta, Sweden. He spent his first few years living in bougie comfort with his mother and his grandmother. Uh, Raoul grew up uh, in about as much privilege as it's possible to grow up with. His grandfather had been the Swedish ambassador to Japan. His uncles were wealthy bankers, founders of the Inskilda Bank. Uh, he had kin who were bishops. Uh, his great-grandfather was a Jewish man who'd become the king's chief financial advisor. Uh, he himself was not Jewish, but like he comes from you know privilege. When you're, yeah. you've got a relative who's advising the king on where to invest money. You're well, uh, Anyone who's got an ambassador uncle, you're yeah. like, oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I actually live near the Saudi embassy, and I can tell you those kids do not drive... Well, do you like ever like walk by and go, oh, if I'm feeling crazy today, maybe I'll go in there. I mean, again, we're really trying to get away from talking about committing crimes on this podcast. Oh, sorry. But I can't help myself. I will say it looks pretty fortified. Mm. Like you would have you would yeah. have trouble yeah. um, next to a really good shop for getting like uh, desserts and stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, really, really nice desserts and coffee. Yeah. Uh, also a nice T-shirt store next door. And then. Where Saudi is it? Embassy. Like in Koreatown area? No, it's in like uh, the West Side. Uh, oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, because most of the embassies are, are like kind of on that Wilshire block, like it's the consulates and stuff. Some Saudi mm. building, and it's like this giant fortress-looking thing uh, mm. in the middle of like a shopping district. It's really weird. Interesting. It, it's one of those things. There's no signs. I uh-huh. didn't realize until later, but there's all like regularly really nice cars with diplomatic plates driving through, and like mm. usually driving like a bat out of hell. Because <laughs> I mean, I if I had diplomatic plates, yeah, no, I, I would. Lawless. Yeah, I would never drive sober. Uh, <laughs> <What>? So, 
Okay. <laughs> when Rowe's mother remarried in 1912, he was six years old. His stepdad became the administrator of the largest hospital in Sweden. By all accounts, his childhood was a happy one. His mom and stepdad gave him a great deal of freedom to roam around, and uh, he generally had an opportunity not a lot of rich kids have, which is to kind of come to their own conclusions about life. Rowe was particularly close to his grandpa, Gustav. Since Gustav spent his career as a diplomat, he considered himself a citizen of the world rather than just a Swede. He wanted his grandson, Raoul, to grow up understanding the duty and obligation that he felt people owed each other. Raoul graduated from secondary school in 1930. He spent nine months in mandatory military service and then spent a year at the University of Poitiers in France. By the time he was 20, he was fluent in English, German, Russian, and French. <laughs> Sounds wow. exhausting, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm always over... I mean... It's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's always an interesting thing. Like, American kids don't do that. Like, it was kind of an old-timey, kind of, mm-hmm. like, European style to be like, I just learned all the languages. I just learned all the languages. <laughs> yeah. There's no television. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Like, there's no Twitter to distract me. Anyway, I speak Chinese. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Never going to go there because yeah. there's no antibiotics. It's just a hobby. It's just a hobby. <laughs> yeah. Uh, In 1931, Roel traveled to the United States for college. He was an artist, and he sought a career in architecture. Although he could have afforded to have an Ivy League education, Rawl had no interest in surrounding himself with a bunch of wealthy pricks. His sister described him as an anti-snob who loved Charlie Chaplin, hot dogs, and sneakers. He went by the nickname Rudy. He would not have fit in at Harvard or Yale, but the University of Michigan proved to be a perfect fit. Nice. I heard it's nice. It's like in Ann Arbor area? Yeah, it's in Ann Arbor area. Gorgeous during the winter. Most of what I know about Michigan is that Ann Arbor is a place in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very true. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. <laughs> uh, he was popular at college. One classmate recalled that Raul was a star who always thought to the essence of an issue. He was full of energy, good humor, and generally a good guy. Raul refused to join a fraternity because, in the words of a friend, he worried it would isolate him from a certain strata of students. Wow, he really is a good guy. If he's like, no, I'm sorry, fraternities just aren't for me. It's you know? gonna. It, I just feel like I don't want to hang around with rich people all <laughs> yeah. the time. Yeah, he's like, I'm not trying to get sucked into bro culture. Yeah. You know, really trying to open my eyes and see. Just what's trying out to there. see the world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. During the holidays, Wallenberg indulged in his passion hitchhiking. He wrote in a letter to his grandpa that, quote, when you travel like a hobo, everything's different. You have to be on the alert the whole time. You're in close contact with new people every day. Hitchhiking gives you training in diplomacy and tact. This training would prove critical for what's going to come later. Hitchhiking also gave Wallenberg experience in staying calm during moments of tremendous danger. During his second summer in America, what? Just only a man could do that. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, this is definitely. I'm like, could I have done that? No, I would have been murdered in my moments of diplomacy. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, as a heads up, this is a story of a guy who's born into like about as much privilege as he's possible to be born into, but who actually like deploys it really effectively, Yeah, uh, which is part of why I like this story. So, during his second summer in America, while he's hitching from Chicago to Ann Arbor, the East Coast distances are always weird. Like, when I was in D.C., I would go through, like, two or three states in a day just to, like, yeah. get lunch. And it's like, what, I actually, when what I, are you people doing over once there? Once when I was in Chicago, I took the train to Ann Arbor for the day. It's nuts. That easy. It's, it's, it's <laughs> lunacy. Yeah. I, I grew up in Texas, and then I moved to California. So, I'm yeah. used to a state being a thing that, like, mm-hmm. you got to really... You got to want it. The East Coast is nonsense. Uh, <laughs> and I don't care who knows it, except for Pittsburgh... Okay. <laughs> Official East Coast city of this podcast. Really? <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, I don't know why. That's where movie theaters started. Really? Yep. 
Well then, Pittsburgh! <laughs> there you go. Um, so during, yeah, his second summer in America, this paragraph's taking us a while, <laughs> while hitching from Chicago to Ann Arbor, Wallenberg was picked up by a suspicious-looking group of four young men. Mm-hmm. He later recalled that he, quote, started to work my poverty into the conversation in order to convince them that he wasn't worth robbing. This did not succeed. One of the men jammed a revolver in Wallenberg's face and demanded all of his money. He stayed calm. In fact, he later reported that during the robbery, he realized his robbers were, quote, the ones who were frightened, maybe because I was so calm. I really didn't feel any fear the whole time. It was more like an adventure. Um, he was robbed and tossed in a ditch, but even this didn't cause him to give up hitchhiking. <laughs> oh, my God. Just the calmest guy in the world. Yeah. I understand. You know, they didn't, you know, they had to. Yeah. They were robbing me. It's whatever. I feel bad that they were so scared. <laughs> I was fine with it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, he took this as a warning to carry less cash and, quote, try to become more devious, mm. which is good <laughs> advice in general in life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's... He's like, I learn from everything. Yeah. You know? yeah, he's he's really that kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. This is a learning opportunity. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Raul came to love the United States, and he had a difficult time leaving the country after February 1935 when he completed his BA in architecture. Mm-hmm. But leave he did, because the world was beckoning to him. Raul next spent six months in South Africa and then a year in Palestine as a banker's apprentice. It was there that he first came face to face with the consequences of Nazi racial policy. Oh. Palestine in the late 30s was flooded with Jewish refugees from Germany, men and women who'd been bankrupted by the Nuremberg Laws and forced to flee for their lives. One of Wallenberg's biographers believes that the conversations he had with Jewish refugees left him permanently changed. He felt as if he had to do something. Uh, I want to note that as soon as I said Nuremberg Laws, the dog barked. Yeah. Again. She doesn't care for it. No, she does Mm -hmm. not like Nazism. It's a good dog. It's a good dog. She's continuing to growl. Oh, somebody's delivering something. Possibly a Nazi. Uh. (laughs) She (laughs) She doesn't care for it. No, every time she hears that word. Mm -mm. In 1937, Roll's grandfather and mentor, Gustav, died. Roll's next four years were difficult, or at least they were rich get difficult. Uh. Uh, He started two businesses, both of which failed. (laughs) But he had family money, so these failures were more like hits to his pride than financial disasters. Uh, It is possible that some of his failure had to do with his inability to really focus on commerce. As the Third Reich wore on and the Second World War sparked off, Raoul grew more and more concerned for the Jews of Germany and of Europe. For a long while, his ability to help was limited to providing food aid to a family of refugees who'd fled to Sweden. But in 1941, with Hitler at the height of his murderous power, Raoul's uncle Jacob uh, introduced him to a man named Kalman Lauer. Now, Lauer was a Hungarian businessman who had interests across Central Europe. Since Lauer was Jewish, Nazi domination of Central Europe made it almost impossible for him to, you know, yeah. travel. Do not, anything. Not get killed. <laughs> Exist. Yeah. Exist. Yeah. It was a rough time to exist <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you were a Jewish guy in Central yeah. Europe. So... Lauer's business was essentially like an exotic food import company, and he put Wallenberg in charge of the company's European operations, because Wallenberg looked like the whitest dude ever. We'll throw a picture of him up on the site. I don't have one on this document, because I am cracked out, Anna. (laughs) Oh, boy. I I can see the literal red eye in your eye. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, Sophie has pulled one up. Oh, he had like male pattern baldness. He's so cool. He's just a normal guy. Just a normal guy. (laughs) If you were central casting white man, you would pick Raoul Wallenberg. Very normal looking dude. Wow. So Wallenberg's now in charge of this company's European operations, and he starts spending a lot of time in Budapest, which is kind of where they're centered. Uh, He falls in love with the city, which is an easy thing to do. Uh, Truly. Budapest. Beautiful, beautiful city. One of the prettiest cities to see from water that I've ever Mm -hmm. had. Yeah. Lovely place. Now, Hungary was an ally of Nazi Germany at the time. Hungarians have kind of a history of being on the wrong side of any given 
conflict ideologically, but especially fried food. <laughs> oh my god! Oh man, I had some of the best. <laughs> Your like, eye just like, twitched thinking li- about it. Like, like a, it was a brick of bacon, like yeah. the size of an actual building yeah. brick that was all fried. <laughs> like the consistency of a Cheeto all yeah. the way through it was so fried, so good, yeah. so good at fried food in Hungary. Mm-hmm. Pretty good at beer, but on the wrong side of your diet. Well, yeah. End of Fried world, bacon. End of World War Two. <laughs> yeah. End of World War One. Yeah. <laughs> One day, you know. One day. A lot of rough decisions made in the early part of the 20th century. <laughs> just fry it. <laughs> they benefited the most from, like, Germany, mm-hmm. just because of how nobody thinks about what the Hungarians did during that war anymore, because, yeah. like, they're right next to Germany, and... Oh boy. Yeah, I got washed away by yeah. all that, by all the German behavior. I guess we just let them take the blame for this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Start walk away whistling. Uh, well, no one saw us. So are we really there? Yeah. <laughs> they were definitely there. Uh, yeah. Uh, Hungary was an ally of Nazi Germany. Its soldiers fought and died in Russia alongside the men of the Wehrmacht, uh, but it was not officially part of the Third Reich. Hungarian Jews were forced to wear yellow stars wherever they went, just like mm-hmm. German Jews. Um, But they were not sent to concentration camps, at least not initially. Uh, Admiral Miklos Horthy, Hungary's leader, was not a good guy, but he was a better dude to have in charge than, say, Hitler, if you happen to be Jewish, Uh, (laughs) which is a low bar. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. a very low bar. Yeah. But he was not Hitler. So by early 1944, Hungary's 700,000-ish Jews were probably the most intact Jewish community in Europe. With the war turning against them, the Nazi high command decided, in essence, that if they couldn't win the war against the Allies, they might at least win their war against the Jews, which is very much how they viewed it. Now, Admiral Horthy was not a total fool. Uh, It had become clear as a bell by 1944 that the Germans were not going to win this war. He tried to pull his country out of the war and out of its alliance with Germany, but Hitler was like... Nah, dog. <laughs> I'm Hitler. I'm, I'm Hitler. <laughs> Maybe you may have heard of me. Heard of me. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've both heard of Hitler. <laughs> we, we've all heard of Hitler. Uh, the Wehrmacht occupied Hungary on March 19th, and Horthy was basically ordered to put a bunch of Hungarian Nazi types in charge of the country. Mm. So he wasn't removed from power at this point, but he was told, like, you ain't doing nothing, dog, and you better, <laughs> you better throw some people that we yeah. like in charge. Yeah. So once the Nazis were in charge, the Nazis did what Nazis do, exterminate Jewish mm-hmm. people. By July, they had deported around 440,000 Jews, and this was the rapidest deportation and wow. elimination of a Jewish population in Europe. Within a couple of weeks, they deported like 400-something thousand Jesus people. Christ. Most of them wound up in Auschwitz, where 320,000 of them were exterminated upon arrival. Enter. The U.S. government. Yeah. Kind of belatedly. <laughs> Took a couple of years, a few million deaths. Yeah. But while up until this point, the United States' is a reaction to the Holocaust could best be described as piss poor, the Roosevelt administration finally decided, we should maybe do something mm-hmm. about this thing we don't have a word for yet, because yeah. the word genocide wasn't coined until after this point, but they, they decided to do something. Um, murder rampage. Murder rampage. There you go. Yeah, yeah. They sent a guy named Ivor Olson to Stockholm as the official representative of the War Refugee Board, or WRB. Mm. Now, Olson's task was to find someone who could speak both Hungarian and German and was willing to travel into one of the deadliest parts of the world as the Reich slowly collapsed and try to rescue Jews from Hitler's death machine. Mm. Olson met Kalman Lauer, and Lauer recommended his friend Raoul Wallenberg for the job. Wallenberg instantly agreed. Uh, He traveled to Budapest in July 1944 as, officially, the secretary for the Swedish embassy in Budapest. So... We're going to talk about what he did in Budapest. But first, do you like products? (laughs) Are you a fan of services? I am. Well, that's what we're, that's about ads. 
The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. 
We're talking about not a bastard today, the opposite of a bastard, hero. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, so when we last left off, uh, Wallenberg had just sort of made it to Budapest uh, as a secretary with the Swedish embassy. But that job title was essentially nonsense. Yeah. Wallenberg had a pretty open sort of mandate to just try to save people's lives. And they'd given him just a job so that he was technically attached to the embassy. Right. And But was he almost just like on a secret mission? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what was happening. <laughs> okay. uh, so Wallenberg's one condition for taking this job was that he have full permission to do his work without contacting the ambassador or any other government officials for permission nice. about anything. Basically, he was like, I want to be a loose cannon diplomat who yeah. doesn't have to play by anybody's rules but <laughs> yeah. his own. And it, this rarely happens in government, but they were like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're in kind of a weird time. <laughs> this is a, this is a weird time. <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, <laughs> Can't make the situation worse. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys seen what's happening out there? <laughs> By late July, the only intact Jewish community left in Hungary was the Jewish ghetto in Budapest. Now, before the Nazis could deport and exterminate all of them, too, Admiral Horthy ordered a halt to the deportations. And again, not because he was a great guy, but because he was like, they're definitely going to lose the war, and I want to be the guy who tried to stop the mass murdering, so maybe I don't get hung. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he's an opportunist. He's an opportunist. I mean, you, you get credit for trying to stop the Nazis from killing Jewish people, mm-hmm. for sure. Glad he did that. But again, Horthy's a complicated figure in history. Yeah. We'll say that. So his uh, his halt held for a few months, but it was clear to everyone that eventually the Nazis were going to push back again because it's kind of what Nazis do. Wallenberg began to focus his efforts on protecting the Jews in his care from being arrested or attacked in the hopes that the Jewish community in Budapest would just be able to sort of wait out the end of the war. So he was kind of playing for time. Yeah. Raul opened a diplomatic office in Budapest. He hired 400 Jewish people to staff it. He didn't pay them because he didn't really have the money to do that, but that wasn't the point. As embassy employees, these Jews would be protected against deportation. Wallenberg ordered his men to remove their yellow stars. He told them, you are now under Swedish diplomatic protection. So this remains the only truly justified example of an unpaid internship in history. Um, Whoa. Yeah, yeah. So it was done well once. (laughs) Let's just say this is going to save your life. (laughs) Let's just say you work without pay so that you can't get deported. (laughs) Yeah. Is is that cool with everybody? Yeah. (laughs) His next move was to start issuing a new type of Swedish passport, the Schutzpass. The government gave him the authority to print 1,500 of these passes, and he lobbied to increase that number to 4,500 and eventually just started printing them out and handing them out like hotcakes without permission. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wallenberg designed these protective passes himself because, again, he was an artist. He knew German and Hungarian fascists, like all fascists, were unduly impressed by colorful government documents with impressive symbols on them. Uh, Wallenberg printed his protective passes in yellow and blue with a garish coat of arms that included the three crowns of Sweden in the middle. They were covered with stamps and signatures, all of which were just nonsense. He just knew that it made it look more legit. But the Germans are like, wow! Wow! That's, there's a shitload of stamps on this motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. All right, you're good. I guess we're not committing genocide today. Did you see the stamps? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's absurd. It's just really ridiculous that it worked. Because the Schutzpass was more or less a lie, but it was yeah. a lie that worked. By the end of the war, it's possible that he issued as many as 20,000 of them, which means 20,000 human lives were saved by what was, in essence, a really good set of doodles and bullshit. Yeah. But it worked. Oskar Schindler, for some comparison, saved around 1,200 human lives, which is obviously still an immense, almost unthinkable act of heroism. Yeah. But I'm just trying to point out the titanic scale of what Wallenberg accomplished, yeah. because he's just getting started at this point. So 
One of the reasons Wallenberg was so successful is that he had grasped an incredibly important truth about law and government, which is that neither of those things are real in any meaningful way outside of the heads of the people that live within them. The only thing that matters is the belief. If people believe something is official, if they believe you speak with the might of the government and they'll get in trouble for disobeying you, well, then you can make them do almost anything. In other words, Wallenberg took advantage of the Nazi tendency to just follow orders and used it to save lives rather than end them. Now, uh, the War Refugee Board and Swedish government provided Wallenberg with enough funds to rent 32 buildings. He declared them extraterritorial buildings, which Mm. was, again, not a thing. Uh, He told everyone that these buildings were legally covered by Swedish diplomatic immunity, and he told this lie so forcefully that it wasn't questioned. The buildings he rented were built to hold less than 5,000 people, but Wallenberg, being a pretty decent architect, remodeled them and was able to fit 35,000 Jews inside of them. What? Yeah. He also operated a soup kitchen and a hospital for the people in Budapest's Jewish ghetto. Uh, wow. Yeah. He's he's hitting with all steam here. Working he's fast. A couple of months into the job yeah. at this point. Yeah. <laughs> On October 15th, 1944, the Hungarian Arrow Cross movement seized power and deposed Admiral Horthy. Now, the Arrow Cross was essentially just uh, Hungarian Nazis, you know? Okay. Um, they were backed by the Germans and acted as an even more puppety puppet government than the last one had been. The deportations resumed. Wallenberg instantly began confronting trains filled with Jews before they could depart for their journey to Auschwitz. Sandor Ardai, a driver for Wallenberg and member of the Jewish underground, later recalled one such instance. Quote, He climbed up on the roof of the train and began handing in protective passes through the doors, which were not yet sealed. He ignored orders from the Germans for him to get down. Then the arrow crossmen began shooting and shouting at him to go away. He ignored them and calmly continued handing out passports into the hands that were reaching out for them. I believe the arrow crossmen deliberately aimed over his head, as not one shot hit him, which would have been impossible otherwise. I think this is what they did because they were so impressed by his courage. After Wallenberg had handed over the last of the passports, he ordered all those who had one to leave the train and walk to the caravan of cars parked nearby, all marked in Swedish colors. I don't remember exactly how many, but he saved dozens off that train, and the Germans and arrow cross were so dumbfounded they let him get away with it. He would regularly (laughs) stop trains and just shout, yeah. At SS, we, even when he didn't have passports, would just berate the SS guys in charge of the crowd to let whole carloads of people off. Like, what? Yeah, this is. Just, and he, there was nothing backing him up. He was just going out there and yeah. being like, "These are Swedish citizens, yeah. with no proof." Just yeah. like, just a really good liar. Yeah, <laughs> and really good at <sighs> bullshitting and pretending he has the force of a government. It really, is the him. power of confidence. It's the power of being a tall white guy. Yeah, but fake, he's like, "Fake it till you make fake it. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> fake it till you." Yeah. Averted genocide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Nazis being Nazis, they did push back against Wallenberg's safe houses. On Christmas Eve 1944, a bunch of Nazis raided one of Wallenberg's oh, no. safe houses. They took hundreds of people out in the middle of the night and marched them to the Danube. The Nazis tied three people together at a time, shot the person <gasps> in the middle, and then would let the corpse pull the other two down under the freezing river. This was to oh, save bullets. God. Germans, you know. They're not monsters. They're Nazis. Yeah, they're (laughs) Nazis. Jesus Christ. Uh, Wallenberg found out what was going on, and he rounded up volunteers from his staff, people who could swim, and together they jumped into the river and fished out as many survivors as they could find, (gasps) saving 50 or 60 people that night. Now, the. Yeah. The Arrow Cross had even less respect for due process than the last regime it had. They took to hunting down and murdering Jews in the street. So Wallenberg had to ramp up his rescue operations in order to cope. He found Aryan-looking young Jewish men, and he put them in Arrow Cross uniforms and had them guard his safe houses. He started issuing protective papers to everyone and just ignored the fact that the Swedish government hadn't actually given him the power to do that. When his funding ran low, Wallenberg turned to blackmailing local officials and businessmen and committing other petty crimes in order to finance his rescue operations. Of course. Why wouldn't you at this point? Why why not? Fuck it. Yeah. (laughs) The world's ending. Yeah. Yeah. 
The Arrow Cross responded by declaring Wallenberg's protective passports to be no longer valid. Wallenberg protested to the government and somehow managed to get them reinstated. But at the end of the day, Eichmann and the Nazis who really ran things in Hungary now were committed to wiping out the last of that country's Jews. By the winter of 1944, the Russians had advanced enough that the Germans could no longer send Jews to Auschwitz on trains. This didn't Mm. present a major problem for a guy like Eichmann because he still had the option of just forcing the prisoners to go on a 125-mile death march without food or sleep, uh, which, you know, pretty much kills the same amount of people as a gas chamber in the European winter. Uh, Tens of thousands of Jews were sent off on an enormous forced march to their doom. Wallenberg gathered up trucks, food, and medical supplies. He traveled along the road of march and handed them out, trying to give the marchers the best odds of survival possible. And when he could, he attempted to abduct some of them. Here's a quote from the book Wallenberg by Katie Martin. You there, the Swede pointed to an astonished man, waiting for his turn to be handed over to the executioner. Give me your Swedish passport and get in that line, he barked. And you, get behind him. I know I issued you a passport, Wallenberg continued, moving fast, talking loud, hoping the authority in his voice would somewhat rub off on these defeated people. The Jews finally caught on. They started groping in pockets for bits of identification. A driver's license or birth certificate seemed to do the trick. The Swede was grabbing them so fast. The Nazis, who couldn't read Hungarian anyway, didn't seem to be checking. Faster, Wallenberg's eyes urged them. Faster, before the game is up. In minutes, he had several hundred people in his convoy. International Red Cross trucks, there at Wallenberg's behest, arrived and the Jews clambered on. Wallenberg jumped into his own car. He leaned out of the car window and whispered, I am sorry to the people he was leaving behind. I am trying to take the youngest ones first, he explained. I want to save a nation. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. This is an act of pure balls. Wallenberg had no legal basis for what he was doing, but he knew something important about fascists, which is that they respond to confident leadership. It's kind of their only thing. They'll do whatever a loud and certain person tells them to do. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, he just, he just hacked knew. their little he Nazi brain. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. this is how Nazis yeah. work. Oh, fine. <laughs> yeah. They just want a confident guy to yell at them. What? That's yeah. what I'll do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's genius. Saving people grew to become an all-consuming obsession for Raoul. Before he traveled to Budapest, he'd confided in a friend that his nightmare would be to return to Stockholm knowing that he hadn't done absolutely everything in his power to save yeah. as many Jews as possible. So while he was in Budapest, Wallenberg slept just four hours a night at most. He was constantly in motion while he was awake. This was necessary because the fascists were always moving too. Tommy Lappet, a 13-year-old who lived in one of Wallenberg's safe houses, recalled this. One morning, a group of these Hungarian fascists came into the house and said that all the able-bodied women must go with them. We knew what this meant. My mother kissed me and I cried and she cried. We knew we were parting forever and she left me there, an orphan to all intents and purposes. Then, two or three hours later, to my amazement, my mother returned with the other women. It seemed like a mirage, a miracle. My mother was there. She was alive, and she was hugging me and kissing me, and she said one word, Wallenberg. I knew who she meant because Wallenberg was a legend among the Jews. In a complete and total hell in which we lived, there was a savior angel somewhere, moving around. After she had composed herself, my mother told me they were being taken to the river when a car arrived and outstepped Wallenberg, and they knew immediately who it was, because there was only one such person in the world. He went up to the Arrow Cross leader and protested that the women were there under his protection. They argued with him. But he must have had incredible charisma, some great personal authority, because there was absolutely nothing behind him, nothing to back him up. He stood out there in the street, probably feeling the loneliest man in the world, trying to pretend that there was something behind him. They could have shot him then and there in the street, and nobody would have known about it. Instead, they relented and let the women go. Oh, he just kept screaming at them. He just kept screaming at them until he saved (laughs) hundreds of people. Yeah. That's crazy. Jesus, this man. This guy, right? (laughs) He's, He's... Hell of a deal. He's almost yeah. like a folk hero. Yeah. Uh, Wallenberg became famous among the Nazis as well. Eichmann called him Judog Wallenberg because Nazis are not very creative people. No, not at all. <laughs> not what? at all. Judog? Yeah. That okay. doesn't sound like Raul. Get out of here. <laughs> Ra- Rajul, maybe? Like, if, I, if I'm trying yeah. to do that. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, there's other... Yeah. Like, fucking Eichmann. They harassed him regularly, and uh, the Nazis even blew up his car at one point. He took oh, to wow. sleeping in different houses every night in order to avoid assassination. As 1945 dawned, the Soviet war machine was closing in on Budapest. There were only 100,000 or so Jews left alive in the Budapest ghetto. Eichmann ordered 500 SS troops and even more Arrow Cross soldiers to ring the ghetto and prepare for what would have been the largest gun-based massacre of World War II. Now, for a little bit of historical perspective, the largest, I think, gun-based massacre of the war was the uh, Bobby Yar massacre, which I think was like 41, might have been 42, where the Einsatzgruppen unit shot like 30,000 people. That's when they line a bunch of people up and then just... Yeah, and they actually had, they stopped doing that in favor of the gas chambers because, like, so many of those guys wound up killing themselves and becoming alcoholics. He's like, you just can't have people do that. It's hard. It's just, oh, just not great for it. It's, it's hard. To, it's hard being a Nazi. Oh, fuck off. Fuck off. Now, uh, so yeah, that was the plan. And these guys, you know, at this point in 1945, if you're an SS trooper in Budapest, number one, you're probably were wounded fighting the Russians, which is why you're in a place like Budapest. So these mm-hmm. were hard sons of bitches. Uh, yeah. Probably who would have been, you know, they would have had to be to be capable of massacring 100,000 people. But that's the situation that we're in in mm-hmm. 1945. And we will talk about what happens next after some. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot 
and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Boy, howdy. I do love ads. Boy, comma, howdy. So we were talking about uh, how the Nazis were going to massacre 100,000 people by shooting them to death in the Budapest ghetto. Oh, oh the joy. <laughs> the, the joy? Oh, you're talking about the ads. <laughs> yeah. No. no. Talking about Wallenberg coming to hopefully save them at the last second. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. So Eichmann had ordered this massacre, but he was not there in person because he mm-hmm. was trying to escape Nazi Germany, uh, which he did for a while. Yeah. Uh, so the task of murdering all these people went to SS General August Schmidt-Duber. Now, Wallenberg caught on to the plan, and he went straight to Schmidt-Duber's office. He promised the man that if anything happened to the ghetto, he would make it his business to ensure the general was found personally responsible for the massacre and hanged for crimes against humanity. This was pure bluff. But it worked. Schmidt-Duber called off the massacre. Look, man, I don't want to have to get you hung. I don't want to get you in trouble, buddy. (laughs) She's like, what are you talking about? He's like, "Uh, yeah, you know, you're going to get in trouble. I don't know. Let him go. (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll get you in trouble with some sort of international legal committee that doesn't exist right now. Yeah. (laughs) The Soviets took Budapest later in January, and that should have been the start of Wallenberg's happy ending. But Rohl's contact with the American government led the Soviets to suspect he was some sort of spy, because Ivor Olson, the guy who had hired him and worked for the War Refugee Board, also worked for the OSS. Um, And while the USSR was not nearly as anti-Semitic as the Nazis, they were still pretty (laughs) anti-Semitic. And one of the things that you read about the guys who found Wallenberg in there and why they found him suspicious is they could not wrap their hands around the idea of a guy doing everything that Wallenberg had done just to save Jewish people. Yeah. They're like, there's got to be, he's got to be some Who's sort of a weird spy. Him? What's yeah. going on here? Yeah. yeah, There's no way this man just has goodness of the heart. <laughs> yeah, there's no way this man just wants to save human lives. <laughs> so Raul was arrested, and we don't really know what happened to him. Uh, the most likely story is that he died sometime in the 1950s in the KGB's infamous Lubyanka prison. The oh Swedes my were, God. Yeah, it's fucked up, right? The uh, Swedes were so concerned with having good relations with the USSR and staying neutral that they took no effort to save the life of a man who was a citizen of their country, a government employee, and one of the greatest Swedish heroes ever born. Yeah. Uh, in April of 1945, the U.S. State Department even offered Sweden for like help in asking the Russians about Wallenberg to like pressure them a little bit. Yeah. And Sweden said no. They didn't want to compromise their neutrality by trying to save this guy's life. Uh, In 1946, after intense public demand, the Swedish foreign minister went to Moscow to ask Joseph Stalin, in essence, what happened to Wallenberg. 
And he did ask him that, but immediately afterwards, he said that he personally thought Wallenberg had probably died in Budapest and basically gave Stalin an opening. And Stalin took the opening and just didn't say this was untrue. So that's the line the government went with for a while. What? Yeah. Oh, you never give Stalin an opening. <laughs> you never give Stalin an opening. Not J. Stalin. That's what he's, gonna, he's, what he's going to do. Ugh. So in 1957, after Stalin's death, the Soviet Union finally admitted that Wallenberg had, in fact, survived the war. They said he died of a heart attack in captivity in 1948. This remained the Russian government's official stance until well after the end of the Cold War. We still don't really know what happened to Raoul, although it's safe to say the Russian government imprisoned, probably tortured, and one way or the other definitely murdered him. Uh, now, at the end of World War II was a chaotic time. Estimates vary wildly on how many lives Wallenberg saved. The most common estimate is 100,000 human beings, but it may be several times that many because his activities provided a blueprint several other embassies used to rescue Jewish people as well. Mm. Wallenberg almost certainly saved more lives than any other member of the Righteous Among Nations, which is sort of a title that the uh, the nation of Israel has awarded the non-Jews who saved Jewish yeah. lives during the Holocaust. Nobody saved more people than Raoul Wallenberg. Jeez. And in fact, 100,000 lives is uh, 160th of the total number of Jews dead in the Holocaust, saved by one guy. Wow. Gideon Hausner, the man who prosecuted Adolf Eichmann and later was the chairman of Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center, said this about Raoul Wallenberg. Here is a man who had the choice of remaining in secure and neutral Sweden when Nazism was ruling Europe. Instead, he left this haven and went to what was then one of the most perilous places in Europe, Hungary. And for what? To save Jews. He won his battle, and I feel that in this age, when there is so little to believe in, so very little on which our young people can pin their hopes and ideals, he is a person to show to the world, who knows so little about him. This is why I believe the story of Raoul Wallenberg should be told, and his figure, in all its true proportions, projected into human minds. That's it. That's the story. That's insane. Merry Christmas. God damn, the Russia always ruins everything. <laughs> well, I mean, they did beat the Nazis, but yeah, they, True. they did they some terrible there, shit too. They got there, but then they too. go and yeah. take the one man who like basically was out here yeah. screaming at Nazis until they were like, I don't know, I'm confused. His voice is loud. I guess yeah. I listen. Like the Hungarian Jewish community wound up, even though it survived later than most of them, wound yeah. up being like one of the most completely destroyed Jewish communities in all of Europe. And virtually the only Hungarian Jews who survived did so because of Wallenberg. Because of Wallenberg? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. A hundred thousand lives. You think they tortured him just to find out who he was working for and just wouldn't yeah. believe why would you? Like, why would you know it could be this nice? Yeah, yeah. that's crazy to me. Yeah, uh, yeah, just a man. Or, what do you think happened to him? I think he was probably thrown in a prison, tortured for a little while, thrown into a prison. I think it's very possible he did die of a heart attack. He was yeah. only thirty-two when all this happened. But you know, you torture somebody for a while and you starve them. You know, oh, so he started doing this around in his early thirties. Yeah, he just, was thirty-two when he got the job. Thirty-two. He's just mm-hmm. like, well, you know. Yeah. All Gotta right. go save some lives. <laughs> 32 with his only professional training in architecture. Wow. And just was like, all right, I'm just going to go lie until I've saved 100,000 people. God. I would... And then did it. <laughs> I imagine at 32, I will still be doing nothing. <laughs> well, what I'll I like, like about podcasting. <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. He's a, well, that's why he's a good person to, uh, to fill people's minds with, especially on a show where we otherwise just talk about reckless evil mm-hmm. and the insane deadliness of human hate. This guy who grew up and learned one of the most important truths you can learn as a tall white guy, which is that there's all, it's a superpower. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you're a tall white guy and you just balls your way into a situation with confidence, nine out of 10 people will listen to you. 
Nine out of ten Nazis. <laughs> Spe- no, we'll ten out like, of ten Nazis. I don't know, man. He just seems I mean, to know we're supposed to kill these people, but look at how tall and white he is. <laughs> yeah. I, and look, he's got that paper with all the stamps ah, on it. I don't know. This I guess very we. Colorful. I guess we don't kill these people. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> it's wild. But it would just works. be like, get off, get off the train, get off the train, get, get off, off the, the train. train. <laughs> look at how tall this guy is. Get off the train. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. That's an amazing story. Yeah. Never heard of him. Yeah. That's wild. I don't even. I am so upset with the USSR. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty frustrating. And Sweden. <laughs> yeah. I, God, that is so annoying. It's like, yeah. you just, the man did so much did work so for you. so much. In like five or six months. Yeah. <laughs> saved 100,000 lives. Like, sorry, we're neutral. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So, be like Raul Wallenberg. Uh, yeah, save lives. Print some fake passports and go save people. Speak loudly. Yeah. Be tall. Do crime, save lives. Yell at fascists. Yell at, fa- yell at fascists. <laughs> yeah. But productively yell yeah. at fascists. Yeah. To get them to be less fashy. You think that would work with the alt right? If you just want to just spoke loud, like, guys, I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth a shot, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know. He's talking quite loud, and he is white. What if we all go to Waffle House? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh yeah. Waffle House. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And just. Give them heart disease through Waffle House. <laughs> yeah, just poison all the waffles. Yeah, that's that's. Uh... Or fry them forever, mm-hmm. the Budapest way. The Bud- fry everything. Ugh, yeah, I do want to go back to Hungary and eat more. It's actually Bacon, quite cheap bricks. too. Yeah, very inexpensive place. Yeah, yeah, I recommend. Kind of have a dictator in charge now. That part's not great. <sighs> Isn't Europe is just like us? They go back and forth. Same thing with Poland. It's happening over there as well. Yeah, yeah. People they got some fascists in charge. Forget how bad it went the last time. Yeah, and they're like, what if we try that again? Yeah, maybe not everyone will die this time. Yeah. Well, we're on a wave. We better hope there's a couple of Wallenbergs waiting in the wings, getting their degrees in architecture right yeah. now, learning how to use their power as tall, balding white men to yeah. <laughs> shout the world into a better place. <laughs> I hope so. I need someone to just tell me where to go. <laughs> I know. That's that's why it works. Yeah. yeah. So this is a great story about the power of lies and bullshit to save mm-hmm. lives. I love that part of it because uh, I'm a big fan of lies and bullshit. Yeah. Great thing to be able to do. Anna, pluggables. To plug. Uh, you can listen to my podcast with Shereen Yunus called Ethnically Ambiguous on the House Stuff Works Network. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Anna Hosnier. I tweet about stuff. I retweet Robert every once in a while. Robert just posted a really crazy video. Of oh, a yeah, guy, it's wild. How to get out of like uh, when Speaking you fall, of heroes, yeah. When you fall through ice. Yeah. And he did it by falling through ice yes. on video and then like calmly explaining the things that you need to do to yeah. extricate yourself from that situation. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. It's truly like, oh, man. Well, and it teaches you these things. There is a similarity in that video between what Wallenberg did, which is that when the guy first falls in the ice, you can hear in his voice that he's in a pretty dire strait because yeah. it's shocking. It's and, freezing. And, like, and that's why most people die is that they yeah. panic in that moment of extreme pain. And he walks you through that like, you just have to breathe for a while and yeah. calm down and realize the cold's not going to kill you right away. It passes. You have time. It passes. You have time to think through your actions and calmly and decisively extricate yourself from the situation. Yeah. And in every dangerous situation I've ever been in, that really is the key is mm-hmm. like, okay, my body is telling me to take certain actions right now, but maybe I should think for just a second and like figure out calmly. Like you almost never need to take that sort of panic thrash response. It's yeah. all about. Moving with purpose. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. It's a great video. Yeah. 
Look it up somewhere. It's on your Twitter. Look up Guy Falls Through Ice YouTube or oh, my Twitter yeah, just go to today. Twitter. Yeah. But I will have tweeted yeah. probably 50 times just about- Scroll back four months. Nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what day it is. So- Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. Uh, I can. Yep. Uh, you can buy a t-shirt. Uh, you know, it, I should. You should buy a t-shirt. And you listening should buy a t-shirt from T Public's Behind the Bastards store. Phone cases as well. Cocaine spoons. Sophie is saying that they sell branded Coke spoons now. Fantastic. So and Fleetwood Mac, if you're listening. Branded Coke totes? Branded Coke totes. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Also Fleetwood Mac. We're really, yeah. really aiming for that sweet Fleetwood uh, Mac demographic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something to blow cocaine up your butt. Yeah. Uh, I'm Robert Evans. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at I Write OK. You can find my book, A Brief History of Vice. It's a great Christmas gift, although this will probably be running like the day before Christmas, but you can buy a Kindle book anytime. Amazon Prime, man. Yay. Speaking of gigantic evil machines (laughs) that destroy the- Support the evils. Oh, God. This paper is even from Amazon. Why is Amazon selling paper? They literally do everything, Robert. There's nothing you can't touch that at one point- came through the hands of Amazon. It's anyway, crazy. Amazon, if you want to throw some ad rev our way. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, boy. No. It's a machine by the way, my home generates it was misery. made by Amazon. Wait, what? Yeah, I live in a prime home. <laughs> no, you're no, lying. I'm just joking. Okay. It's not, it's not it here yet. It hasn't gone that but far But you know yet. it's coming. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, I'm sure we will all live in prime homes. <laughs> yeah, I live in the prime apartment complex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's no bathrooms, no. but there's a hole in the wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You have to deliver three packages every morning. Mm-hmm. It's part of your yeah, rent. You just start working for well, Amazon. Amazon has started to do this thing where like, they they just have random people delivering stuff. They they're, do. They're not good at it. So they I, just show up in random cars. I just see packages lying everywhere now. <laughs> yeah. where it's like, yeah. you guys don't know how to do this job. You're, they really, they it's third party yeah. all the way. They yeah. just are like, yeah, you can do it. Half of them don't deliver your packages. Yeah. You're like, why do you have this job? What if random people... Just did everything yeah. for nothing. Yeah. And that's how our company works. Ten cents and an hour. I get a billion dollars a day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the Jeff Bezos yeah. plan. He's another guy who just was like talking very loudly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're mm-hmm. all like, yeah. No, yeah. that's why I have so much respect for the one guy who doesn't use that power for evil. Yeah. Uh Raul Wallenberg. So yes. if he was in charge of Amazon. It'd probably just be a company dedicated to saving Syrian refugees. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah. Amazon Prime, you just literally get a What if we refugee. just ship them out of the country? They're just delivered to your house yeah. and you just take care of them yeah, yeah, and help yeah. them start a new life. Yeah. 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 If you're listening, Amazon. <laughs> yeah. That's what you should be doing. That's what you should be doing. Go to the, Greek, the islands in Greece and help. I will stop talking smack if you just start shipping mm-hmm. people out of country. Cameroon, too, can maybe mm-hmm. use it. Ugly stuff going on there. Anyway. Anywhere. Anywhere where there is some serious strife with the people. Yeah. Honduras? Honduras, Come sure. On. Ship people out of there. Yeah. Send them to Ohio? No, that seems mean to them. Send them to, Send them to San Diego. Michigan. Yeah, Ann Arbor. Ann yeah, Arbor. Ann Arbor. Wallenberg would appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Michigan. Nice place. Beautiful. Beautiful. Beautiful place. All right. Well, this has been the episode. Merry holidays. Enjoy your winter times. Eat eggnog fight Nazis Mm -hmm. I love about 40% of you Bean Dad The Dress 30 to 50 feral hogs if you knew what any of those were you spend too much time online and hey I do too 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me Jamie Loftus and every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day 
Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Clam comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.